one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of like what I think the power of audio is, which is I think it's an inherently more empathetic medium than TV. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So who is this week's mystery guest? I've gotten guesses all over. All over. You name the social media channel. I think I even got an astronaut. <laughs> Somebody asked me, is that Buzz Aldrin? I said, no. <laughs> so who is it? I think we should just play the clip to reveal it. Yeah, my name's Alex Bloomberg, and I'm the CEO of Gimlet Media. Gimlet Media is this company that's just a leader in the podcast space Alex Bloomberg, many of us as Americans have like grown up with this guy's work in our ears, you know, through This American Life and Planet Money. And now their show Startup has like galvanized the podcasting world and the entrepreneurial community. Everyone's talking about it, including ourselves. In fact, last year, we created an episode essentially critiquing what Gimlet was all about. And we never thought to invite Alex onto the show at all. And I think after speaking to him this week, you know, I think our critique would have been a lot different had we spoken to him. For sure. So Gimlet's first podcast was called Startup, and it absolutely like blew up. And if you haven't listened to it, you absolutely must. So Startup was really all about the story of Alex's decision to leave the world of public radio, to go out and to raise money to build a company that's aim was to produce high-quality narrative-driven podcast. And Alex's thesis was that this could be a viable model. And he's proven it, that if you put time, energy, and world-class expertise into narrative audio, people will listen and advertisers will line up to have an ad played on a mobile device that will be listened to by people. And that's just a very rare thing. Yeah, and they have, I think, over 50 employees now. They have a new studio in Brooklyn, and they have several advertisers on their various shows. And I'll say this, it's amazing, Dan, to me that in two years, basically what's happened. That's incredible. If you look at the landscape, right, like for a long time, there was like This American Life and Planet Money, which Alex was a part of. And those were huge, huge programs. But now all of a sudden, in two years, there's all these new great shows that are out that are gaining popularity. And it's worth mentioning that Gimlet also produces shows like Sampler, Reply All, The Mystery Show. Right that are quickly becoming household names, you know? And I think it's hard for that to happen. So look at the podcast space, like iTunes, you go in there and like, of course I know a few of them because I'm in that space. But when you ask the average person, you know, do you listen to any podcasts? The two that I hear are Serial and Startup. And Alex is part of Startup. But now I think you're starting to hear more about things like Reply All, which I think has a lot of likes too. Yeah, I think part of Alex's point is like, look, we couldn't have done this without some of this money. Right. And actually, we were joking around a little bit. I was like, man, well, that is a sweet studio you got. And he's like, well, thanks to some of this VC money we took. So <laughs> I think what we'll do is we'll start the conversation there. You could have a microphone like we do. <laughs> I don't think I could fit that in my backpack. <laughs> so I'm not able to add somebody to this call. Let me see if I can. I'm not sure. I've never added. Oh, yeah. Look, add. Here we go. I think you're in charge of that now. Add You're the admin. All right. Looks like that's happening. 
Hello. Hey. Hey. Hey, guys. Not to ask a completely unconfident question, but why did you come on this show? I became aware of you guys, I think, a while ago, I think during the first startup, because you guys had a big conversation about it. And I remember somebody tweeted about it, and I listened to a bunch of the stuff that like you did during season one of, of Startup. So we're going to respond to this in three parts. So the first part, we're going to talk about what startup represents in the zeitgeist and in the podcasting world. In the second part, we're going to discuss some of what we see as like the ironies of the venture capital world. We've got a couple bones to pick in that section. And in the third part, we're not going to just critique. We're going to try to offer some solutions. Like maybe what if Alex came to us instead of Chris Saka? What would we say from a lifestyle business perspective. And just a caveat, we're using startup as a chance to talk about some ideas that we're passionate about it, but this isn't a criticism of startup. It's an incredible show. We hope that you'll go listen to it. It's certainly inspiring for us. And I've just always been curious about what you guys are up to and about the whole thing. And I hadn't had a chance to like really follow up or do anything crazy, like listen to your podcast or anything like that. But I wanted to, I mean, I've actually listened to a couple episodes, but not like I'm not anywhere near a regular listener to anything, not just you guys. So don't feel too bad or whatever. Feel however you want. (laughs) But when I got the request, I was like, ah, I want to, now I can get some of my questions answered. (laughs) I mean, you're going to ask me questions, but I was hoping that in, in the course of that, I would get some of my questions answered too. And Alex, I want to apologize for that. We actually felt really bad about that, making that show oh. and not inviting you to comment on it. I think it was rude of us at the very least. Oh, that's okay. No, 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 that's fine. I found it really interesting because I was wrestling with a lot of those same questions about sort of like what kind of company did we want to have and why did it make sense to take VC money versus not VC money and, you know, all those questions. So it was super interesting. I thought you guys were like super fair about it. It would have been fun to talk to you, but it wasn't like, it never occurred to me like to be mad. I was going to say to paint you a picture on our show, you may or may not know, but a lot of the entrepreneurs that listen to the show are bootstrapped entrepreneurs. And so here was this show and you guys were talking about building this company and everybody on our show was like, don't take the money, Alex, you can do it without him. I know you can do this. (laughs) And so we felt a lot of pressure to talk about these issues. I mean, Gimlet, it is that weird middle ground, right? Like there is a way to do it, certainly, without taking a lot of money. You know, with just like maybe doing some friends and family, you know, or whatever. But I think the reason that I wanted to take money is that I wanted to make the kinds of shows that I was already used to making. And I knew what the budgets of those shows were. And they're not cheap. You know, I mean, This American Life, it's a $4 million a year budget. Plan of Money was $2 million a year. And I didn't know how to bootstrap that. You know, I didn't know how to bootstrap like a bunch of you know, professionals who are going to work for free for six months until we worked out an ad model. And then plus, I've never been very good at bootstrapping anything. I'm not like a, I, I don't know the value of a dollar in a very, very profound, real way. Like, for example, I'll always be at the bodega and somebody will say like, oh, it's $2 and I'll be like 20. And they'll be like, no, two. And I was just ready to play 20 because I don't know the value of a dollar. And I don't have very much money. It's not like I don't have money. You know, like I don't have very much money, but it's like on paper, I have a lot of money now. But I don't have, you know, a lot of money. It's just never been something that I, like has been able to penetrate my way of thinking. One of the things that's common for people that listen to our show is it's hard to describe what you do on a day-to-day basis to your friends and family, especially when you're first getting started. People are like, that's crazy. Like, why don't you keep your job? You had like the ultimate cocktail party job. You'd be like, oh yeah, you know this little thing called This American Life? That's this guy. (laughs) So, I mean, what was the reaction to people around you? And even now hearing that, that you were taking a big risk in terms of the amount of money you were going to invest in these shows and you didn't know 
whether you were going to get the audience that public radio has. I was just so certain that it would work that it wasn't, I don't think there was much of room. I was just telling people about it. And I was just really, I just was like, here's how you could do it. And I was just like building ridiculous Google spreadsheets. And I had no idea how to do that. And Nazi, my wife, was on board. Like if she wasn't on board, I definitely could not have done it. Was there like a set of stressors in your life that was motivating you to start to look to do your own thing? You know, there's no one answer to anything, but there's a bunch of things. I think there was like a big picture sort of like mission-driven part of it, which was that it just felt like, okay, so this American life worked, Planet Money worked. And it felt like after Planet Money worked, it felt like, oh, well, this is something that you can you can take this kind of storytelling and this kind of long form sort of journalism and you can apply it to a bunch of different places. And it just felt like, OK, well, well, now we know like this is a fertile ground to experiment in this kind of storytelling and we should do it. And then, you know, we launch and like startup you know, takes off and then Serial comes along and demolishes everything in its path. And so like <laughs> then it was very clear, like, OK, yeah, that was that was the right instinct. This is a. Global Telling prepaid call from Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's serial. One story told week by week. So there was that part of it. And then there was also the part of it of like, I know coming from public radio, it's like a very, it has a huge cultural footprint. It's always perpetually underfunded and it has like such a small sense of itself. When you look at the numbers of public radio across the board, there's something like, I don't know, 38 million weekly unique listeners to the public radio system in general. And, you know, the big marquee shows have numbers that are like rivaling, you know, big hits on television. And, you know, Serial is like Serial's numbers were like better than Game of Thrones, you know, or something up there with Game of Thrones. You know, they're like these gigantic cultural things and they don't act that way. They don't punch their own weight at all. It just always felt like a mismatch. It always felt like there should be more money coming in than was coming in. You mentioned that it cost $4 million to produce This American Life. You jumped out of public radio and you exited a plane and you landed on a pile of cash, VC cash. How jealous were your colleagues of this? Because now all of a sudden you have tons of money to make shows that I assume you want to make. Well, I don't think they're jealous. Like my colleagues, if they were jealous, all they had to do was like, say, hey, I want to do a show. And then we'd be like, okay, you're hired. Because <laughs> in the beginning, we just needed people. So, and we needed people with those skills. So that's been the biggest takeaway is sort of like the long form journalism storytelling skills that are sort of unique to audio are pretty scarce, certainly at the high level. So the people who are really jealous and were like, God, I want a piece of that, they could get a piece of it. You know, they just had to quit their public radio jobs and come work at a shaky startup. I think most people are just sort of like, you know, it is sort of a crazy thing to do. So most people were like, I, I, well, I still wouldn't have done that. And then other people are sort of like, it's sort of exciting and it gives everybody options. So right now, like I always say, like this company goes out of business, like the one thing that I can look back with pride on is that like I've gotten my former colleagues in public radio raises. Like they have all, (laughs) the labor market has really tightened for audio producers and it's benefiting people. So that's been fantastic. I think it's common for artisans to end up as entrepreneurs. Like you did, maybe they don't have a sense for money. It's because they built things. And I'm curious, like before I became an entrepreneur, I had all these mostly negative associations with the business world. And now that you're squarely like the CEO, you're the man, you're the business guy too. What have you learned about entrepreneurs as like a group? You need both. You know what I mean? You need like, you need a good business sense and you need a level of artistry to do it. And I think if you look at a lot of the companies out there that succeed, they have some kind of vision for what their product is and what they're doing. And the vision is driven in some sense by like, 
an internal sense of, I want to say aesthetics. Aesthetics probably isn't exactly the right word, but something like aesthetics, some sense of like something that approaches artistry more than just business sense. You know, certainly Apple's the one that everybody looks at, but like any successful company, there's like some sense of internal style to it, I think. And there's like some business acumen. And so I have now learned that I'm not at all a good business person, like just at the nuts and bolts of business. Like I just am not, I don't think very well that way. So I was very fortunate to partner with Matt that it wouldn't have worked without that partnership. But I've also developed a real respect for that kind of thinking. Like Matt, he will examine a business problem and he will bring this level of creativity and it's the same internal sense of sort of like, like he has a sense for it, like he has a feeling for it inside the organization. Like there were some moments where it was sort of rocky and like teams weren't like necessarily gelling and like Matt felt it like in the same way that I can feel like a bad edit. He just felt it, you know, it was really interesting and I was sort of blind to it and he brought it up and he was totally right. And then he brings this level of creativity to it. Like the example that always stands out to me, and this is something that I didn't really think about, but like we're an ad driven company, right? And we are a nobody startup. Nobody's ever heard of us. And like, we're trying to sell our, you know, inventory to advertisers. And most of the people listen on the phone. And so Matt sort of looked at all that constellation of sort of like data. And he came up with this really creative story to tell advertisers, which is that podcasting is the first truly mobile solution to advertiser problems. Everything's moving to mobile. It sucks for advertisers because they can't reach those people. There's not as much inventory. And even if there is, people skip over it even more habitually than they skip over online or on TV. And he was like, we provide a unique solution to that because people who are listening to us, they don't skip our ads the same way they skip other types. And it's right there in the middle of the media. And so it's like this real great solution to advertisers. And I never occurred to me to think of ourselves as like a solution to an advertiser problem. But like Matt did, and it was really smart. It did occur to you to make your ads worth listening to, though. And that's why it's like such a great partnership. You know what I mean? Like that did occur to me. I was like, well, if I'm going to make the ads, I want to make them enjoyable or try to. Yeah. Alex, in terms of the Gimlet shows and the Gimlet family shows, what do you think it is that ties them all together? We're doing this big thing where we're going to, we want to put together a sort of a sense of principles for the company and sort of a mission statement where that's going to be something that we're going to be doing this summer. Oh boy, you're getting to the point where you have an employee handbook. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was skeptical like you were. So here's why that's important, I think, actually. There's a gazillion ways to make money and there's a gazillion podcasts to do. And like right now, you can imagine like every day we get emails like, hey, I have a podcast idea. I have a podcast idea. And sometimes they're coming from like sort of impressive people like with like, you know, Hollywood resumes. And we have to have some sort of like set of guidelines. How do we even make those decisions? And it's not just about like, well, how much money could we make off of a Donald Trump podcast? Not that Donald Trump has come to us, but you know what I mean? Like how much money could you make off of, you know, podcast X? But that's a factor. Like they have to be able to pay for themselves. We want them to be hits. But That's not at all the main factor. It's not at all even necessarily the most important factor. So what is? And then that's where you're like, well, what is important to us? (laughs) You know, and then you have to, and then you're right there. You're at like, okay, what's our corporate mission? Right. It's like, how does your taste scale? And it can't be my taste. It was your taste at the beginning. It was, yeah, but it's not only going to be my taste. And at some point, we're going to make something that isn't really to my taste. But I want it to sort of, I guess, reflect the core values that I share and that, like, I I guess my company will share. So I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of like what I think the power of audio is, which is I think it's an inherently more empathetic medium than TV in that 
you know, people are listening to us. They don't see us. They hear our words, so they know we're real people, but they're sort of creating their own images of who we are. And in that act of creation, as they listen to us, we are now part of them in a way. And so it's easier to empathize with the words we're saying. It's so fascinating you say that because I was recently found myself turning down a TV interview, which is incredible for a self-promoter like myself. And I thought the reason is, is I felt like I would just be put in front of people to be judged. Yeah. Why do you love this format so much? Well, I mean, for that reason, because like, I feel like if what you're trying to do is understand people and their motivations and, and trying not to judge them and trying to understand them, I feel like audio is a much better medium for that. Like you can just hear their words and you don't judge how they look and you don't judge what they look like and all that stuff. To me, I think that will be important whatever we launch is that like it'll be using audio to its full power, which is to help be a little bit of a corrective to the general media landscape, which is all about like retreating to your camps and lobbing pot shots at one another. If I said to you the NASCAR producer moment, would you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you describe like, what was that moment like? Or just, <laughs> can you take us to that moment? That was an episode we were doing about diversity at Gimlet. And like, we were talking about like the world of journalism in general, which is a very largely white world. And we were talking about, you know, sort of Gimlet. And I, I was talking about how we wanted to make an effort to make Gimlet a more diverse place than traditionally the places that I'd worked in public media and, and journalism. And, and then we got into a conversation, as you do once you start talking about diversity, about like, what what is the different forms of diversity and the gender diversity and sexual orientation diversity. And then I started musing. We were having this conversation and I started musing to the person that I was talking to who was a gay man in New York. And he and I were talking about sexual orientation diversity. And I was like, you know, there's political diversity. I, I would bet that most people at Gimlet are sort of liberally oriented. That's true for journalism in general. And I would bet that, you know, there's not a lot of, I don't know if we have an evangelical Christian on staff, I said. And then our producer, who was listening to the interview as, as it was going on, sort of came in and he was like, you know, I heard your conversation. And I felt I should tell you that I'm a Christian. I was sitting outside the studio listening, uh, uh -huh. as is my job for yeah. these things. And you guys started talking about religious diversity in the yeah, workplace, yeah. which was fine and interesting. But you started talking about basically writing off populations, right. essentially, because we just have to decide, like, who are we going to, uh -huh. what are we going to value as a company and who are we going to target as our audience member and what are we going to develop right. content around? And, like, that that worried me uh -huh. a little bit when you guys started talking about yeah, yeah. that. You know, Alex, you, you said, I don't think we have any evangelicals on staff. I grew up going to the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, uh -huh. and I am still a practicing Christian, and uh -huh. I go to church every Sunday. Uh -huh. um, I have a like life group that meets in the middle of the week, and half of us are startup listeners. And then we got into this long conversation about that. I thought it was incredibly brave of him to do that, first of all, and just sort of like, you know, put himself out there on the podcast. I mean, I think it just sort of like drove home the point that like, you know, you don't know, and that it's like important not to assume anything about people, you know, based on how they look or how they act. As the CEO of this company, it's kind of interesting now because you get to consider things that you may not have considered before, like at public radio or as an employee. And you have to kind of decide, like you said, through your mission statement, what things are important. Why do you think it's important for you to have a diversity clause in your employee handbook? It's more than a clause. I, th I think it's sort of central to our mission. I feel like it's important for a number of reasons, but I think not foremost, but one of the main reasons is, well, I think it's the right thing to do. If audio can bring understanding, which is sort of the thing that I believe and the thing that I'm saying, then I think we want to try to set up a company that mirrors that goal, that is like a diverse group of people that are trying to sort of understand each other. And then I think also like it does matter when you're covering it's a messy, diverse world that we are going to be covering. And if it's just a bunch of white people covering it, I think just stuff gets 
missed. I'm not saying like that white people can only cover white issues and black people can only cover black issues. And, you know, like, obviously I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that like, I've seen it happen. And now that we've gotten a little bit better in that department, I've seen the value it brings. It is incredibly valuable having not the same person, you know, just replicated throughout the organization, which is what tends to happen. It happens, it tends to be sort of like white liberal arts educated, you know, people who fill newsrooms and fill journalism outfits. It's just so much better when that's not the case. It's just a richer, more vibrant better, healthier product, better place to work. It's just better. In a lot of ways, these are conversations that people aren't willing to have. And you're actually having them in public on a radio show. It can be very personal topics, maybe for your producer, maybe for you. What are some of the kinds of moments or topics that are off limits? Well, yeah, that's a good question. So in the beginning, it was simpler because it was mainly just me and Matt. And like, all we had to do was be okay with like making ourselves look ridiculous or whatever. Start again. Yeah. So you've now kind of meandered right. really tight this time. How are you going to make money doing this? So you, you make money a combination. So there's three major, there's three major revenues streams. I start again. I meander my way through the ad rates, planet money. At a certain point, I find myself deep into an explanation of my friend's successful Kickstarter project. Chris interrupted. You lost track your own outline. Yeah, I did. What you, what you haven't given me is the outline of your story, right? Uh-huh. If I were calling an Uber right now and it said, it's going to be here in two minutes, and that was all the time you had, uh-huh. what are you doing? So I'm making a network of digital podcasts uh, that we will monitor, that, that, will, that, will, that is going to meet. <laughs> Sorry. And that's hard enough. But, like, we're doing this incredibly privileged thing with just getting, you know, rich people to give us money to start a company. So, like, that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, we should be okay with that. It gets a little trickier when, like, you've got personnel issues. And, you know, like, we've had to let a couple people go. And I can't imagine that that would ever make it onto startup. Just because it's, like, now it's somebody else that you're messing with and, like, opening up in a very private way. And I I can't imagine just having that really difficult conversation with somebody like, hey, this isn't working out. And, by the way, do you mind if I record this for startup? You know? And it doesn't feel fair to even put somebody in that position to have to answer that question. I think that's going to be off limits. I mean, there's certainly things that like, you know, like a sponsor, we've done some stuff about sponsors that we've had and like some of them probably don't want to be (laughs) mentioned and so we probably wouldn't mention them, you know, in this podcast, in the startup podcast, you know. It's interesting to me how brave some of your employees are when they come on the show and kind of like tread around the issue of like, well, you know, maybe Alex isn't willing to fire people that need to be fired. And that's something that we all are so frustrated about our career in public radio, which I assume people get tenure or something there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just like, it's just, there's not a culture of doing it. Yes, I agree. People are really, really brave. I wasn't even as aware of how brave people were being until I really sat down and thought about it. And other people pointed it out and I was like, yeah, that's right. Because I wasn't used to being a boss, really. It took me a while, I guess, to sort of fully understand all the implications of being a CEO and what that means to other people. And it means that you can fire people. And like, that's always somewhere, you know, it's not always on their minds, but it's something that can easily surface on people's minds, especially when you're talking about firing people. I wasn't even as aware as I should have been about how brave people were being in having those conversations with me. And as a CEO now, what worries you? Because there's these two sides of the fence. There's the artisans on the one side, you know, happily making their craft. And then I look over at what you're doing. And I'm like, oh my God, 50 people. How many people work at Gimlet now? It's over 50. It's like 52 or 53 or something. Yeah. 
I feel stress on the opposite. I feel stressed <laughs> out just encountering the number. How do you feel about it? I'm psyched about it. It's really exciting. I feel like, I mean, because I felt like I wanted a home to be able to make the stuff. And I had it at This American Life. You know, I mean, This American Life is a great place to work. And Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, is an inspiring, you know, genius to work for. But it's just one show, and now they're starting to do more. And so I just wanted to make that kind of scenario available for more people with more different kinds of ideas. So when I look around at 50 people, I'm like, oh, that's, look, it's, it's sort of working, you know? And so what freaks me out about it is that the skill of making a home for creative people to do their work is not the same thing as being a creative person doing a creative job. You know what I mean? A lot of the things that I have to get good at are being really good about support and being really good about putting systems in place and being really good about, like, development and training and really just sort of, like, taking care of the details that makes this place a good place to work. And that's not typically my strong suit. My strong suit is, like, being sort of inspiring and being, like, willing to talk through people's creative questions with them. But like, there's a lot of detail work that goes into it and a lot of process stuff that goes into it. And so that's what I have the team for. It sounds like essentially what you're saying is you're creating an environment that is going to foster people through their careers. I mean, a lot of people are probably coming in where you were 20 years ago into your company. And what are you telling them about their career trajectory? And how does that influence them on a daily basis? We want to be the home for narrative audio for like decades to come, you know? All that depends on people wanting to work with us because it's not like a thing a machine can do, not yet anyway. And so we need people. So people need to want to work with us. So we have to make ourselves a place where people want to work, a place where you grow, you learn, you continue to develop, you help other people grow and learn. Like, to me, that is, like, perhaps the biggest issue. That One of the biggest issues that we face is the pipeline issue. If you look at TV, the whole TV movie system is predicated on this fact that there's this, like, big pool of talent out there, and there's lots and lots of film schools and TV shows and places where people get trained and they get paid very well, and so there's sort of, like, this, like, pretty well-compensated big pool of freelance talent that can be brought onto a project at any time. And like, and then there's independent producers who help make it happen. And, and there's not really anything like that in audio. Like most of the people, just because for so long there was no economic incentive to get good at audio. <laughs> you know, I mean, there just wasn't. There's no Los Angeles <laughs> for audio. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there was public radio. And you couldn't get a job there. And if you did get a job there, they're going to pay you $45,000 a year. My entrepreneur wheels are turning. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking like, well, there's a problem there, right? Like you guys could create a product. I mean, we're doing internal training now. So like a lot of the people we come, we're hiring for potential and then we're training them in the things that they need to be trained in. And it's not like rocket science, but to get pretty good at audio takes, you know, it's like a year or two of developing a craft to get at the very, very high level, like of the sort of like producer at this American life level or radio lab level. You're talking a couple of years of investment in sort of like learning what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. So we need to build that into our process. You know, that's what we're trying to do. I noticed that you guys are now scouting for talent, you know, like you mentioned that you were looking, are you guys like staying up late at night, like looking at the bottom of the iTunes charts, like looking for talent? Partly that's what we're doing. An early hire was our head of HR or people ops because we're a talent driven business, you know, like we need hosts, we need producers with a vision because we're trying to make stuff that sounds different, that's at a quality level, but that is also going to just somehow like jump out, you know, like that's what we're trying to do. We need stuff that will distinguish itself from everything else. Alex, I know that time is limited, so feel free to cut us off whenever you need. But in the latest season of Startup, you kind of handed the torch over to Lisa Chow as the host. 
And I think it happened in a very natural way. But I got nervous because I thought first, where's Alex going? Like, when am I going to hear from this guy again? And how do I know Lisa is going to be as good? How do you calm me down and, and let me know it's going to be okay? I mean, halfway through the episode, I thought like, wow, okay, I can do this now. This is fine. But I was nervous at first. Alex who? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I think we're going to have to like deal with that again. Like in that scenario, it was very unique because like I had never thought of startup as like going to be a franchise, you know, and it became clear sort of like in the middle of season one that it was, but it also became became clear that if I was going to be the CEO of the company, I couldn't be the host of it. It's just too much work, you know? That's the thing that I'm talking about is like finding, there's not that many Lisa Chows out there, you know what I mean? Like who have that kind of experience and who I've worked with before and who know how to do it. And, you know, that's why we're starting, like, you know, some serious training programs inside the company. And, you know, maybe one day there'll be public training programs and, you know, there'll be like a Gimlet Academy or something, who knows? But that's the first step, I think, in, in calming you is just making sure that we have the systems in place to train people well. I, I do have to go. You are the CEO. <laughs> the Lisa Chow reference, like that's my next, I have to go, I'm right now late for a meeting with Lisa Chow to talk to her about the next episode of Startup, which will be out on Thursday. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thank you very much. We're very grateful that you came on. Thanks a lot, guys. It was really fun. Ian, where are you, by the way? Just like, can you just tell me, like, I see in, the, in your back, what, what is this? Um, I just moved into a property in Texas. Okay. Oh, you're in your garage. You're literally podcasting from your garage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Hey, boss man, do you think do you think Alex has a little garage envy, like studio space envy there? It's interested in your ranchette. Man, I thought we agreed we're not going to call it anymore. It's my fault for introducing that word. This is what happens when you don't take VC. If you don't take investment, you must locate yourself... In a garage. In a garage. <laughs> when I'm done, though, out there, I, I realize it's just a dream right now. I've got the shell, but it's going to be amazing. You're going to want a studio like I got. Tell me, how did you feel after speaking with Alex? You know, Alex, very easy to talk to. Yeah. That was my impression. The conversation was like, because a lot of people, you know this, right? Alex is a performer. He's a professional. He knows that he has to be on pretty much immediately. And it makes it really helpful when you're doing a podcast like this. Not to say we did a good job interviewing him. No. But he makes it so easy. Yes. I just felt like all of a sudden I'm in the lazy boy chair equivalent of an interviewer because you just don't have to work to get interesting things out of them. I'll tell you the other thing that I felt after talking to Alex. I felt inspired because here's a guy who is literally at the top of his craft. He's on the Mount Rushmore of podcasting. And what I saw was a person that's enthusiastic about taking on an entirely new and different challenge. Like, if I was the best podcaster of all time, I would just milk that, you know? <laughs> smoke that forever but here's a guy who's like you know what i'm just gonna like i'm gonna do something completely new i'm gonna build something big i'm gonna learn how to be a ceo and it's like he's just pumped about it like you know he doesn't seem anxious or he just seemed like i got off the phone and i was like i'm gonna do something <laughs> so that's how i felt it was cool to see him so positive about the immense challenges that he's taken on. Yeah, to your point about becoming CEO, I think you and I have like swapped and also taken on some of these roles in our professional careers as well. So in a lot of ways, you know, and I should ask Alex about this, but you know, his craft in the past was producing podcasts, right? But now his, his craft, it seems like is becoming CEO, but the pursuit is the same, right? It's to become very good at something and to perfect the craft and even if that craft is becoming ceo by the way we had a little bit of a chat about the gimlet studio with alex we'll play that after the outro music for those who are interested also alex has sent us a photo of that new studio space that i found to be so very impressive 
We gotta get some money, man. We're gonna put that up on this blog post as well. See, it's funny. You can have all kinds of it. You know, we we did the episode where we kind of critiqued what we thought about Gimlet taking money. But as soon as you see that studio, it's like, oh man, we should take some money. We man. should take some money. <laughs> so you can see the photo of that fancy studio and all the links to everything mentioned in this post at tropicalmba.com/slash/gimlet2. Like Gimlet and the number two. It's worth taking a moment here. You just stepped foot off the plane. It doesn't look like you flew business class to me. <laughs> you have to have a business to be able to fly business class. That's what I learned. <laughs> I had business class envy as I walked past her. I was like, oh, yeah, that was my previous life. Interesting. So here we are sitting on a couch on a stage in our venue that will host 150 entrepreneurs from all around the world descending onto the beautiful city of Barcelona. By the time the listeners are listening to this, we'll probably be in a workshop or at a happy hour or on a bike ride with other entrepreneurs. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Should be a good time and happy to be on the same couch as you here in Barcelona. And we'll catch you all next week. Yep. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I want to keep the video on because I've always been curious where you guys actually are. So, it's actually my first question is where are you? Can you describe your your location? I'm in Studio One. We have studios two, three, and four as well here. Like I'll let you look through the window if you can see through there. See? Oh my God! There's like a bunch of studios there, and then there's people outside. That's our outside. If you look out there, that's our engineer Matt Bull mixing. He's involved in this right now. Can you hear what's going on? No, he's not actually. He's just I'm I'm self engineering this our conversation right now. Got it. You guys don't get Matt. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Matt's mixing an episode of Sampler, I believe. Are you guys going to hold on to this studio setup when you move to the new building? We are in the new building. This is our new building. Oh, okay. No, our old situation was we just had one studio that was like moth infested. Cool. And didn't look like this at all. That was pre-Series A. This is (laughs) post-Series A. So it happened once you get a little money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.